Hi, this is the Robberator, and you can support my mad grab for power and the Sword and Laser podcast by going to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and awesome discussions from fans just like you. I mean, exactly like you. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. It's like Specifically clones. you. It's They're specifically all, you. all like you. It's so weird. I'm a clone. I know I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I like it. <laughs> It's a, it's a, <laughs> I don't actually know who sings it. Uh, um, oh shoot. Well, I, the Smashing Pumpkins did a cover of it, but oh, it's a, okay. it's a, it's a, it's a better band. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired at Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, come on. Smashing Pumpkins were like my favorite band in high school. Uh-huh. Um, oh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's Alice Cooper, I guess. Yeah. It's Alice Cooper. Oh, cool. that's Alice Cooper. Wow, I, I guess didn't so. recognize it. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm Alice Cooper to... was my first concert. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Anywho, we digress. Uh, we do. Welcome to Sword and Laser. Uh, we're not drinking, uh, neither of us, because hashtag olds. <laughs> yes. I'm like not even drinking water. I have nothing. I have water that's been open sitting on my desk probably since the last time we've recorded. We're not. It doesn't, it doesn't go bad, ooh, don't, right? Don't it just drink, gets a weird. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna. Microbes. I'm no. Microbes? What do you mean microbes? What do you think grows in water? Oh. <laughs> She's drinking it anyway. It just has that little bit of a dusty taste. Mm, it has that dusty bacterial editor taste. Oh, it's fine. It makes you stronger. That's it right. It makes you stronger. <laughs> but that Whatever doesn't kill you weakens you for the final blow. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Sure. That's a hopeful outlook. (laughs) Hey, let's jump into the quick birds. Yes, indeed. And we start with some sad news. Uh, British science fiction author Brian Aldous, uh, Brian W. Aldous, author of the Heliconia trilogy, Super Toys, Last All Summer Long. uh, By the way, Last All Summer Long, the basis of the movie AI, has died. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, 92 years old. So this is not uh, someone who was taken... And, you know, in, in his youth, uh, he lived a very long and very productive life, uh, writing mainstream fiction, science fiction, winning awards. Uh, but, you know, anyone dying is is always sad. So thanks to Nick and Ian uh, for putting links in the Goodreads Quick Burns area. And because of his passing, uh, it inspired me for the September book pick to finally get around to reading some Brian W. Aldous. And what are we reading? We are going to read Heliconia, Spring. So it's a trilogy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Spring is the first one. And as I understand it, it's not the kind of series where if you read one, you're left with half a story. You get a a complete story. And if you're interested, you can keep reading. That's great. Um, I, yeah, I didn't know much about this series, but we'll talk a little bit more about some of the interesting factoids about the the series itself later in the episode. Um, I was just really amazed he he passed away on his birthday his birthday was friday and he passed away in the wee hours of of saturday morning so basically on his birthday whenever that happens i always find it to be really eerie yeah like, like i know was... it's a coincidence but or maybe not maybe not maybe people are just like okay this is good i made it to 92 
I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if there's this a psychological morbid. aspect to it, right? Maybe, but I wonder. That, like completionists are like, nope, got to live to my next birthday. Just got to make it a couple more days. I don't know, but I always find that very fascinating. Yeah. When that happens. It's it's similar to when uh somebody dies who's very close to someone else and that other person dies shortly thereafter, usually like a husband and wife, but Carrie Fisher and her mom, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that was brutal. That really that really got to me. Yeah. Oh man, we really we're really kicking off this episode with some depressing <sighs> ass stories, Tom. So yes, but- <laughs> uh, cheer us up with the next story. Yeah. So uh Terry Pratchett um had uh, followed through on his uh one of his uh dying requests, um one of uh, the portions of his uh will and testament, which was that his uh his his final works, the his unfinished works would be destroyed via steamroller. Yeah. And that happened. Uh, Rob Wilkins, who's the manager of the Pratchett estate, uh, posted an image of that hard drive uh, being steamrolled by a vintage steamroller, which has the nickname Lord Jericho. Uh, it which- belongs <laughs> in a museum, which is where it's going to be put. The, the, flattened, to, yeah. the flattened hard drive. They're going to display it at the celebratory Salisbury Museum exhibit Terry Pratchett, His World, between 16th September and 13th January. And so what do you think of this? I mean, when I actually I, I, I found out about this because Ryan, my husband, sent me the link to to Rob's post um, from Terry Pratchett's Twitter account. And he thought it was very sad. And I was very confused because I'm like, this is so perfectly Pratchett. Like, this is exactly what he wanted. And it happened. And to me, that's very, that's great. And Ryan was like, well, he's, 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 he's gone. Like, what does he care? Like, he doesn't know the difference. I'm like, no, but you don't understand if, if anyone knew that he said that, and then some of those unpublished works were published, people would lose their minds with fury because that's not what he wanted. I mean, I mean, if I say something, if I'm like, I want this to happen when I die. And if you don't do that, I'm going to haunt the shit out of you. I am like, (laughs) seriously, like that sucks. Like, that's why we write wills, because we want our wishes carried out after our death. Well, like, you know, just yeah. do it. My do head the thing. to an entirely different place. What'd you think? Because, uh, okay, let me explain something. I have a weird relationship with death. I, I don't like death or anything, but it doesn't bother me the same way it bothers other people. It's not like I'm not scared of dying or anything. I'm just saying, like, I can make jokes about my dead father that make other people very uncomfortable because to me it's like, yeah, but he's gone. Like, Mm -hmm. of course I miss him, stuff like that. So I looked at this and I, you know, yes, I agree with you in principle. It's Terry Pratchett's will. He gets to, he gets to do this and we should, we should respect his wishes, even though he's not here to carry them out. That's why you do wills. I personally probably won't put anything in my will because I don't really care anymore after I'm gone. But yes, you should you should respect the man's wishes. And my immediate reaction on reading this story was, "Ooh, I wonder what kind of data recovery you can operate on. (laughs) That's because you're a next level nerd. Well, also, I mean, I want to read them. I'm selfish. I know Terry Pratchett doesn't want me to read them, and he has every right to prevent me from reading okay, them. They're okay, his stories. But, but that doesn't read, stop my curiosity. Have and you so read I'm all thinking, of Terry Pratchett? No, 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 no. It's not even about that. It's just curiosity. So mm. my curiosity is like, oh, well, I wonder what's on there. I wonder if it's any good. I want to read those first. I want to find out what's, what it is. And Spoiler it, alert. It's probably good. It's probably really good. Well, it's some probably of it probably really isn't. Good. There probably are some things that are just mangled half. But frankly, Terry Pratchett's mangled half stories are going to be better than a lot of other stuff I've read. 
So that was I, I found that really kind of fun and yeah. fascinating and and very in the spirit of Terry Pratchett. So I'm glad, imagine, I'm glad it went out the way he wanted it to. I imagine what he wanted was us to have these conversations and have fun thinking about them being exactly. rolled over by a steamroller. Exactly. Uh, Aaron pointed out that San Diego has decided to start a book festival. The San Diego Festival of Books is their creative name for it. It'll be Saturday, or it was actually Saturday, August 26th. Uh, but I guess if it was successful this past Saturday, then it will continue. You can find out more about it at sdfestivalofbooks.com. Oh, this made me kind of sad. Silvana writes, Cam and Hurley offered to write the now-dead reboot of Xena, Warrior Princess. Uh, Silvana says, while I don't see any need to reboot this classic series, I'd love to see Cameron Hurley's take on it. And I don't think... I, I, I maybe in the back of my mind knew that this was in the works. I'm not sure if we talked about it before in the past, but the series was supposed to go into xena and gabby's like romantic relationship and so i was like oh that sounds really fun and then i basically like got excited about it and learned that it was dead in the same instant and so i was kind of sad because i loved xena xena was like my favorite show i watched conan and xena every single saturday and they were the best and so, like, I'd love to see, like, what a romantic, a real romantic relationship between Gabrielle and Xena would have looked like. And so I hope, like, maybe Cameron Hurley will do some fun fan fiction or something in the future that we can kind of experience that through. Um, but what do you think? Would you, would you, did you think there, is it okay to reboot stuff like that? Or do you think they should leave well enough alone? Well, I mean, that's a TV show, right? Uh, what makes it a fit on our show is the fact that Cameron Hurley, who is an author that we we talk about a lot, uh, offered to save it. Like, I will write for it. Is that not enough? In all caps, uh, was her tweet. And I love that. I, I love that passion of an author willing to say like, yes, I love this series so much. I will help bring it back to life. And I, I respect that. I think it's awesome. Very cool. All right. Sorry, it's your turn. Oh, Veronica <laughs> posted on Goodreads. Who? You're going to make me read this. Uh, super interesting article about buying your way onto the New York Times bestseller list. I have not heard of this website, Pajiba.com. You haven't? No. It's, it's, I think, I believe it's Pajiba. Pajiba? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't heard of Pajiba? Oh, they have nope. a ton of great stuff. Yeah. They're, it's a really good blog. Who are they? They're, they write all about like sci-fi fantasy culture type oh, stuff. Okay. I think it's more, I don't even know if it's strictly sci-fi fantasy. Um, they do a lot of stuff. They it's just like a really Why great blog. Why should I trust them? Is what I always ask when I find a new blog. <laughs> anyway, they've been around for a really long time, so I'm okay, shocked right. that you haven't heard of them. But yeah, that's good. There's nothing really. There's no nothing to like question about this blog. Even I mean, well, no, I'm just post. saying. Whenever I see something that's new to me, I'm like, okay, why should I believe anything they write? Who are they? Where are they from? But if you're saying they've been around for a while and you've read them, yeah. that's, that's my that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Well, they basically did a deep dive. Uh, the the author, uh, Kaylee Donaldson, uh, did a deep dive into this kind of mystery around this New York Times bestselling novel, Handbook for Mortals. Um, it was right at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was by someone named Lonnie Saram, or Saram, and it was a debut novel. And it's from the publishing arm of the website Geek Nation. Now, that might be interesting. I don't know. Geek Nation might actually be a, a competitor 
to Pajiba. So I don't know if there's something interesting there or not. I'm not sure. Someone else in the forums can dive into that. Um, but essentially, through some combination of buying out books in stores that report to the New York Times bestseller list, they were able to effectively like shoot the rankings way up and also doing a little bit of crafty like Goodreads review posting, uh, like five star review posts and things like that. So there's some kind of gaming of the system happening here. And it kind of opens up the question of like, how easy is it to actually get your book onto the New York Times bestseller list? And then they go into in even deeper into it. And apparently the rights to the book had already been optioned for like a film and the author is set to star as the main character in the film. And so is there something like, oh, we will have a better chance of, of getting this story optioned if we can say that it was a New York times bestseller. So all these like motives come into play too, for why well, they would be doing already this. Optioned, they wouldn't need that. So my guess is they must've been in negotiations and the people said, if you get it on the bestseller list, then we'll, we'll definitely buy. Right. And so they, they got all this, um, these, these comments from people who worked at bookstores saying, yes, they got a phone call asking if they were a New York times reporting store. Um, and then if they said yes, or if they said like, Oh, maybe I don't know, then they would say that they were buying the books for a quote unquote event. And then that would, you know, push the rankings up. It's very weird. Well, Hmm. I don't know. Feels a little bit sensationalistic to me. I mean, it doesn't feel like the kind of thing that can happen a lot without people noticing. And maybe it does expose a vulnerability in the New York Times bestseller list uh, formula. But that doesn't mean that the New York Times bestseller list is stupid or unreliable. It means somebody figured out how to game it. And every system is gameable. So... I look at this more like a hacking story of like, oh, you should patch that vulnerability, right? <laughs> like somebody figured out that you can just find out who the New York Times reporting stores are and then buy up those books and artificially shoot yourself up. Because frankly, they, the article says that you can make the bestsellers list with about 5,000 in sales. My guess is that's if you know where all the reporting stores are. You could just buy those because the New York Times probably weights it and says, oh, well, if we sold 5,000 books in our reporting stores, that's probably equivalent to 100,000 books nationwide or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I guess the New York Times needs to figure out, like, how do we shift these numbers around? Is there a better way uh, than just having reporting stores in this day and age of digital? Like, can, can right. we get, you know, huge, larger aggregate numbers? Can you bring Ingram in on it or something like that? But yeah, I mean, the the upshot is, no, somebody shouldn't be able to just start publishing a book one month and be the number one young adult hardcover bestseller the next month. I agree. That seems unlikely. All right. Shad reports at The Oathbringer by Brandon Sanderson. The prologue is up on tour.com. He says, wasn't expecting the prologue to be that POV. Answers a few questions and poses quite a few more. Um. Big thanks to Shad uh, for keeping us on the Brandon Sanderson beat, because I know a lot of you are super excited about the Stormlight Archive epic uh, and and wanting to soak up everything that is leaked about it before <laughs> it finally comes out. So this is very cool. Yeah, it's uh, from the blog post. Uh, Tor.com is serializing the much-awaited third volume in the Stormlight Archive series every Tuesday until the novel's November 14th, 2017 release date. And all of those installments are collected here in the Oathbringer Index over on Tor.com. 
Tor does so many cool things, like giving V.E. Schwab a million dollars, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Genesee posted this one up on Goodreads. Uh, V.E. Schwab has a million dollar deal with Tor Books uh, to create a new trilogy in the Shades of Magic universe called The Threads of Power. So you remember Darker Shade of Magic, Gathering of Shadows, Conjuring of Light. We read A Darker Shade of Magic as one of our picks. Those three are done, but this new Threads of Power series will be set in that same worlds. And she's on the hook for a fourth separate book starring a female assassin in a future version of New York City. Ooh, so much good stuff. I really want to finish that series in my in my in my so much free time. Yes, right. That I have for reading, um, but I really enjoyed uh, the book of hers that we read for Sword and Laser. I and so, and like one million dollars is a big deal. Like, don't get me wrong, but Scalzi and other authors in the past who have had these big book deals go to great pains to explain that yes, it sounds like a lot of money but it's broken down over a lot of time and it, you know, it gets broken down through agents probably too. And there's all these other things and taxes. So it's, 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 it's a lot of money. Yeah, Don't okay. get me wrong, I'm, but I'm, like, I it's not as much money as you probably think it is in your mind. I know Scalzi has done a better job of this, but the short version is, uh, imagine 10% goes to the agents, uh, which probably more goes. Multiple but, agents, you know, probably that's too. $900,000. Then imagine 30% goes to taxes. So now you're down to $600,000. And now it's spread out over 10 years. And now you're down to $60,000 a year. That's not nothing. That's enough to pay your bills as a full-time writer. But if you came out with a headline, John Scalzi to make $60,000 a year, <laughs> it would be much less impressive or V.E. Schwab to make $60,000 right, a right. year than a million dollars. So just putting that into context a little bit, but it's still extremely exciting. And this kind of stuff leads to more stuff oh, yeah, for the totally. authors too, tons of times as well. All right. Well, now it is. What were you going to say? Something? Oh, I don't know. I mean, with all this talk about gaming systems and getting money, I was like, maybe we should just get people to game the reviews for podcasts so that we can shoot our ratings up. Oh yeah, like how? How so, Tom? Well, we just uh, somehow convince everyone to leave a five star rating on iTunes. If you love us, leave a five star rating. <laughs> we have nothing to go. give you for it. I have nothing. I can. Um, <laughs> I think um, that's the that's the part of our our clever cunning plan that we're missing. Yeah, we'd have to. We could like read their names. We could read the reviews. We should do that anyway. Actually, we should do that anyway. Well, how about we'll do that now? <laughs> All right, let's. All right, try to remember All to right. do that. Okay, that sounds good. All right, well, now, now it is time for Barrier Sword, which is our feedback from the audience. So on the heels of that article that you posted, Silvana mm -hmm. started a thread called, Is Goodreads That Bad? Uh, because in that article, it mentioned something about uh, this book that was being discussed having nine reviews on Goodreads, and that being an alarm bell is like, oh, you have nine reviews. They're all really good. That's not that many reviews. And Silvana's like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that you shouldn't trust Goodreads reviews? And there's a long thread of people talking about how they use Goodreads reviews and whether they pay attention to the stars mm -hmm. or whether they pay attention to the actual reviews themselves or what. You know, I, I, I do kind of a mixture of things. I think that the time I most pay attention to reviews is audiobooks. Um, and I do that in 
conjunction with also listening to a sample of the audiobook. Uh, but one of the interesting points that John Taloni made was that Amazon will delete reviews if you're connected on Facebook, which many authors are with their fans. Um, the, I think they'll, I'm not sure what that really means. Is it like they don't want don't, friends to leave reviews? I don't know if I that's true know. or not. They'll just delete your reviews Amazon, if you're connected on Facebook? I know Amazon will do things to try to make sure that the reviews are not faked. And maybe mm-hmm. that involves looking at Facebook, but I'm not sure. You would have to give Amazon permission to check your Facebook friends if you don't make your Facebook friends public. So I'm a little skeptical that it's as simple as he's saying. But the the gist of what he's saying is true, which is Amazon will look and try to get rid of reviews if they are if they think that they're being fake. If there's something fishy. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with a lot of the commenters on this thread who say that Goodreads at least shouldn't let people post reviews before the book's published date. Um, I think that would be one good way of, of curbing some of that behavior. Um, or you could have people who are like trusted reviewers who they can confirm are being sent review copies. They do that. They do that? Oh, that's On great. Amazon, they do that. On yeah. Amazon, they, there's yeah. trusted reviewers. Yeah. Right. But I don't think Goodreads has that they same system in, in place. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it always frustrates me to no end when I see someone, an author, who who whose book hasn't even come out yet that's already getting one stars because a, a reviewer is just annoyed about something that has nothing to do with the book or, you know, read the preview for the book and didn't. I don't know. Like, it, it seems so silly and so stupid. That can burn you on Amazon because Amazon mm-hmm. has this early trusted reviewers program. But sometimes the publishers allow people to get the book who aren't into the book. And if that, you know, if that doesn't play out, uh, if you give it to the wrong people, suddenly your trusted reviewers are trashing your book because you're like, I don't know, I didn't even finish it. It wasn't my kind of book. And it's like, yeah, well, like well, wait a minute, that, that's not a helpful <laughs> review for me. Yeah. So I, 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 I typically go for like the the average review. You know, I, I, I trust that the hopefully, unless it's some an author that's like really riled up a lot of people about something and there's some like concerted effort to give them a bad review on one of these sites, which does happen from time to time. Um, I, I, I trust the, the, my, my friends on Goodreads, uh, especially I have, you know, a pretty full list of people whose opinions I really trust. So I think if you, if you have enough people in your network who are doing good reviews and who, who, you know, are kind of in sync with, at least they're going to tell the truth. They're not going to just write something bad because they're, you know, in a crappy mood that day or whatever, then, then you can kind of start figuring out like who to believe and, and who to kind of get rid of. Yeah, I I I don't even look at the ratings. I I tend to think the ratings are always going to be about 4, you know. Yeah. And and if they're not 4, I actually tend to be suspicious like, "Hmm, why are they so low? Why are they so high?" Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. bad grade inflation. We're bad at picking numbers that way. And as a yeah. lot of people said in this thread, a lot of people pick numbers for different reasons. I did like uh that who was it that said they throw out the one star and the five star reviews mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. oh it was rick said i just i disregard the one and five star reviews and i'll look at the two star review to see okay why didn't they like it so yeah. they, they weren't being overly hateful but did they explain and and i use that for things like yelp <laughs> and foursquare <laughs> yeah. when i i don't just look at the the aggregate score i look down and be like okay why did the people who didn't like it not like it but really for books i just go with what 
my friends say more than than by any kind of aggregate review. And I really liked what Trike said. Uh, he was talking about Ready Player One, and he said, I've said a few times, hating Ready Player One for the fact that it's dumb or wildly implausible is like hating cotton candy for not being nutritious. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not why you read it. So for me, it's a three-star book because it fulfilled its cotton candy mandate. He said, I just watched Kong Skull Island last night, and I liked it for the same reason. It's a giant monster movie that showed giant monsters. Uh, and and so he calls that a three-star. Somebody else might call it a four. Somebody else might call it a two, right? So it's all over the place. Well, moving on, uh, Tassie Dave is at it again with an absolutely freaking phenomenal post about Sword and Laser's 100 books, The Stats. Uh, in case you didn't notice, and I did not notice until this post came out, this month's book pick, Heliconia Spring, is the Sword and Laser Book Club's 100th official book pick. This is excluding the nine alternate picks. So he thought he would give a few stats about those 100 books. Um, I'm just going to read them because, I, well, should we read them all? There's a lot of There's data here. There's a lot. We should read the first few, I think. Okay. Um, 69 were written by men. 31 were written by women. 65 are part of a series, 35 are standalone books. The oldest books we read, the age of the time we read them, was The Hobbit, 75 years and one month, and The Sword of Rhiannon, 66 years. And the newest books that we read were Anathem and A Dance with Dragons, when the reading period started for both on the day of release. That's so awesome. And then the breakdown of the decade of release. This is the decade that the books that we've read were uh, were uh, originally published. 1930s, 1. 1940s, 1. 1950s, 6. 1960s, 8. 1970s, 7. 1980s, 12. 1990s, 10. 2000s, 21. And 2010s, 34. I don't, what do you call the 2010s? The, the 2010s, the teens. The teens. Yeah. Ugh. The 2000s is the harder one because it's like, there's just no the good aughts. name. Yeah. Didn't we call them the aughts? I don't know. I don't know that if that's terrible. ever really caught on, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So a lot I, of great stuff here. I think this is really interesting and it's something that I take very seriously when I pick books is trying to think, okay, what are, what are the decades we haven't read in a while? What are the, the, he the really types does, guys. of authors he really does. that we haven't read in a while? Mm-hmm. Um, so 69 men, 31 women might seem like it's skewed, but frankly, one thing I find difficult is the fact that, especially when you go pre-1980, most sci-fi writers are men. Mm-hmm. It's just the way the publishing industry worked. So you, if you try to go 50-50, you will ha- be picking from a smaller pool half the time, and you will be prejudiced towards more modern writing just because of history. So I don't think we could ever get 50-50 and still you know, represent other things. But mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, maybe we could do a little better than 6931, but I don't think it's bad. Uh, one of my favorite sections were the major awards won by Sword and Laser book oh, picks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 16 won a Nebula Award, 18 won a Hugo Award, 11 won both, 11 won both a Nebula and a Hugo, and 23 won either a Nebula Award or a Hugo. It goes on. Um, and then books that have experienced the, quote, SNL bump... <laughs> which is not a real thing, by the way, guys. It's totally a real thing. Okay. Uh, the Wind-Up Girl won a Hugo, Nebula, and John W. Campbell Memorial Award. Ancillary Justice won a Hugo, Nebula, and Arthur C. Clarke Award. You're welcome, Annihilation man. won a Nebula. 
uprooted when a nebula and a locus. Anyway, it goes on and on. Um, but I did get kind of salty because um, Shad was like, I think it's less an SNL bump and more that Tom and Veronica pick books that were getting lots of buzz. There's nothing wrong with picks like that. I just don't want people mistaking jumping on the bandwagon and <laughs> blazing the trail. That's how I imagine Shad said that. Really? Sorry, Shad. Really? Because if we were just picking books with lots of buzz, not all the books with buzz win awards. See, I, I like how you go the defensive route. And I was like, Shad, we don't think that highly of ourselves. Come that on. Really Obviously, don't, we actually. don't believe that we are causing these Although, books to win awards. The last four winners of the Nebula Award for Best Novel have been picked as sword and laser books before they won. Well, I mean, but they were buzzy probably before they won, too. We but didn't I pick like every think, book with buzz. Uh-uh. I like to think this. I like to think we contribute to the buzz. We are a part of the buzz machine. Oh, Maybe the buzz would not be so buzzy. Maybe. We're sword and laser, mm-hmm. not getting all up in that buzz. Maybe there's a little Max Shaler agenda setting. Mm. Read your communications theory, people. I don't know what that means, but it sounds really <laughs> smart. It did, academic, it really did. It, so. Uh, here are two things that I would <laughs> like Tassie Dave, if, if Tassie Dave has extra time. Uh, I want to know... The the gender and decade breakdown by Veronica and Tom. <laughs> Don't make him do more work. He's done so much free work for us over and the years. I we want do to not. Know, I want to know the award-winning breakdown by Veronica and Tom. Because here's the oh, thing. I who think picks my, the most award-winning think, books? I think my balance is better than yours, but I think you pick way more award-winning books I can, than I do. I can look at this right now and say how it, how it, oh, I know. How it evens I'm out. I'm eyeballing it right now, and I know you're going to be Wind Up better. Girl, that was my pick. And Uprooted was my pick. All the Birds in the Sky was my pick. Wait, All the Birds um, in the Sky was my pick. Um, was it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Goblin it Emperor sci-fi. was my pick. I can't claim A Dance with Dragons, so I did pick it. I mean, we would have read it. We both would have picked it. We yeah. both would have picked that. It just happened to be my month. Um, The fifth season I picked. That was a March Madness one. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a tie. <laughs> it was a tie that you made lost. it happen that as was an alternate. The, you made it was the actually ruling. the alternate because I picked the other one. I know, which was the uh, Ve Schwab. That was Ve Schwab. Yeah, it was Ve Schwab. Which I thought that was Winnie too. Wasn't that Winnie that didn't win things? That won some was things? that no? Not, I thought it did. Maybe not. I thought it did too. Well, in any case, huge thanks to Essie Dave. That, oh, that, you're so good. So you're awesome. so awesome. I love that. This made me really happy. All right. Well, now it is time for our book of the month discussion. Apparently, it's still August and we're still reading The Gunslinger. <laughs> well, we don't want to spoil uh, okay. it for people who haven't quite finished, even if it's August 30th. You better hurry up. Got one day. Uh, so let's talk about next month's book real quick. We're not going to do a full kickoff yet. Uh, but as we mentioned, Heliconia Spring by Brian W. Aldous in memory of the late uh, Brian W. Aldous and David Adam Whitehead of Wordzone. Uh, posted an article about Heliconia comparing it a bit to Game of Thrones. Now, someone put this on Quick Burns, and I'm going to have to go find it out because I failed and didn't put it in our rundown. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in my book briefing and in the announcement on Patreon, I mentioned that, you know, hey, this is a book about a planet with very long seasons. There's no evidence that George R. R. Martin actually was influenced by this. He's never said anything about it, but it certainly is a precedent for the seasons in Game of Thrones. And Adam Whitehead in his article here points out that 
this, you know, Brian W. Aldis wrote this in the 1980s, so George R. R. Martin must be aware of it. But Martin has said unequivocally that the seasons are caused by magic in Westeros. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in Brian W. Aldis, he went to great lengths to justify them by science. And Whitehead does a good job of explaining the orbital mechanics that cause these long seasons. Yeah, he apparently reached out to to many, many scientists and astronomers and, and people with deep, deep knowledge of how planetary seasons work and how the orbits affect things and gravity and their their paths around the stars. And it was it, it's it's really fascinating. And this actually reading this made me even more excited to read the book now that I know that so much research was put into the world building. And all I've heard up and down uh, in everything that I've read about this book is how the world building is a phenomenal aspect of it. And probably the only thing that even comes close is Arrakis in in the Dune series um, by Frank Herbert. So, you know, that's obviously something that that's that was an incredible task on its own. So to, to imagine something even next level from that is is my my mind is already kind of boggled just thinking about it. So I'm really excited to to dive into this one. Yeah, David is the one who uh, posted the Adam Whitehead uh, piece, and I, I did have it in the lineup. I'm just blind, I guess. Nice, I that's okay. Uh, but yeah, Brian it's W. You're Aldis. <laughs> Brian W. Aldis, born in 1925, uh, worked in a bookshop in Oxford after he came back from World War II. Was writing pieces about a fictitious bookshop that got noticed by Faber. And he was published, and then he said, well, I also do some sci-fi. And they're like, that sci-fi stuff is hot. Give it to <laughs> us. Uh, and so he he started uh, publishing speculative fiction. Uh, his first speculative fiction in print was a short story called Criminal Record. Anyway, he's won Hugo's. He's won all kinds of awards. He's been the grandmaster of the Science Fiction Writers Association. He's an officer of the Order of the British Empire, for goodness mm. sake, OBE for his services to literature. And like you said, uh, Heliconia Spring is about an Earth-like planet. It chronicles the rise and fall of a civilization over more than a thousand years, but it's all in spring. And then the following books are Heliconia Summer and Heliconia Winter. It's set 6,000 years in the future, and there is a connection to Earth. A space station from Earth, the Avernus, is in orbit, observing and resisting the temptation to interfere. So hmm. a little prime directive little action A little prime directive on. action. I yeah. like that. I like that. Is that just in the, oh, wow, I sounded like Patrick Norton there for a second. I like that. I like, I like that. that thought. You sounded a little like, uh, like DJ Cobb too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. Uh, that's going to be our book for September. And I said we weren't going to kick it off, but I kind of kicked it off there. So That was a bit of a kickoff. There you was. go. Well, that's okay, because we've talked a lot about The Gunslinger, so I we feel sure like have. we can do kind of a a shortened, abbreviated uh, wrap-up of this. Um, well, let me give you my my final impressions of the reread, because I had read this before. Yes. I And I mentioned this last time, but it got more and more as I went on. I had not recalled how many hooks into future Dark Tower books you get. I mean, the end of this book is a bald-faced setup of The Drawing of the Three, which is the next book in the series. Uh, There's all kinds of references to the extended universe, like The Stand, that I didn't catch my first time through, uh, and all kinds of things in the flashbacks that tie into Wizard Wizard and Glass. and, And I'm just impressed... No, I know that I'm reading a revision from the 2000s, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. my guess is that most of what I'm catching was there in the 80s as well. And he just 
built on it when he he wrote those following books and uh it really blew that part really blew me away and now here i am as someone who apparently in my youth read some of these books but doesn't remember most of them except for like i remember cujo and i remember that's pretty much it. I've read like a few <laughs> books that are in the extended universe uh-huh. of of the Dark Tower. Um, but I it made me I hate not knowing insidery things. And so it made me really frustrated because I knew there were so many tie-ins to other stories that I wasn't getting. And I think maybe that frustrated me a little bit in a hmm. weird way. I did not like this book as much as I wanted to. Um I was very I I think I feel like I liked the first half a lot better than the second half. And I'm not sure why. I I kind of liked the the flashbacks into Tall and mm. and I I kind of liked how kind of graphic and Stephen King like it was in those early stages. And then I didn't feel like I got as much of that in the second half of the book and I just felt bad for Jake the whole time. And yeah. was like kind of confused as to why he loved Jake so much, like like what that that bond there was manufactured of and why it was happening. Um, and yet he was still kind of like standoffish in a certain way because he knew something was going to go sideways with that or that the, the man in black was using it for his own purposes. Um, so, yeah, there was always this like cloud kind of hanging over my head about this book. And I'm not sure what what it was. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't love it as much as I wanted to, though. I am glad that I read it. This is a book about imagery, not story to me. That, that, Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that I keep in mind because I, I was captured by the man in black fleeing across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Uh, I was captured by, by the town in the world that has moved on. I loved the idea of of Jake falling and saying, go then there are other worlds than these. Like those are the moments that stick out to me. I love the world building where you say, thank you, Sai and long days mm-hmm. and pleasant nights and, and all of these things that again, I was impressed how many of them are in there uh, right from the beginning. But I agree with you that the story in the gunslinger is not strong. It's it's in fact it's it's hard to call it a story. It's it's more of a th- a thread of stories mm, that propel mm-hmm. this character towards the beach at the end, essentially. Yeah, there was a, there was an interesting parallel actually for for those of you who are reading uh, the vaginal fantasy pick this month. Actually, the last hour of gone and and the gunslinger at the same time because they both have a violent school for youths in it for, for young males Uh who are training to be this, like these warrior men of some sort, like epic, uh, like chosen by God warriors. And now I'm wondering actually if the author of the last hour of gone, like actually borrowed that from, from the dark tower Mm -hmm. because on, in hindsight, they are so similar in so many ways with so many similar references that I wonder if they aren't the same or, or born of the same idea. Um, but yeah, that was, I, 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 the jumping around, like it, it didn't bother me so much at the time, but now I'm like, I kind of just wanted to stick with one of those threads and go with it. Yeah. But maybe that's part of the, the atmosphere of this book is that it, it does that as you were saying. And when you get to the drawing of the three, I almost have the opposite reaction 
uh, at least that's what I remember when I read it, which has been a few years ago now, where now you get a you get a more straight ahead story. You get a more linear story, but you're kind of missing. You're like, wait, but what about this part of Midworld? And what about this and that? Like you kind of miss parts of it. And it really does require you to read all of them. Not not all the ancillary stories like The Stand and, and Salem's Lot or any of that stuff, but mm-hmm. but it does kind of require you to read all seven or eight of them to really like put together all the pieces and go, oh yeah, okay, it's all in there. I just had to be a little patient. And uh, we had a, a post from Matthew <laughs> who says, then this song has been in my head all month. So what's the deal with Hey Jude? <laughs> it's mentioned three times in this book at different locations in the world. I understood at first that maybe King was trying to show us that this is Earth, but why keep coming back to this one specific song? Wouldn't other 20th century songs have established that thread? I feel like this song must mean something more in some way. Well, I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that Hey Jude appearing in this world does not mean this is Earth. Jake is from Earth, Mm -hmm. and uh, the gunslinger doesn't know a lot about Earth, so it's a parallel world where some things are the same. I think Stephen King just really likes Hey Jude. And he thought, hey, you know what? what's weird? We have like just a couple of songs from the Middle Ages, you know, like row, row, mm-hmm. row your boat. Well, row your boat's probably from the 1800s. But, you know, like if you think of like what songs have lasted more than 100 years, it's only a few. And so it would be really weird to someone from the 1600s to show up and go, that's the song you picked from my time period. And that's <laughs> There's all, so many better songs. That's God. always the way I felt about Hey Jude is that Stephen King just liked Hey Jude and thought, oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to have that one weird song from ancient times pop mm-hmm. up. And 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 did, if you had a vast variety of ancient songs, that would be weirder if you think about it. Like, how did they preserve all of those? But the one that they did manage to to pick up was Hey Jude. And uh, Phil says, uh, for those too young to remember, at the 85% mark, King directly quotes Hey Jude, don't make it bad, take a sad song and make it better, help, help me, that may be accidental, and Insta Karma by John Lennon, we all shine on. Yeah, well, Stephen King's a huge Beatles fan, so. Yeah, so, I mean, if I was a novelist, I'd be sticking, uh, probably, Smashing Pumpkins lyrics in my book somewhere, (laughs) if I was much younger. You gotta be careful with that, though, because you still have to pay lyrics uh, licensing. If you, you reproduce too much of it, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Fascinating. You'll often um, see books where where they'll say like such and such song reproduced with permission by uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were there were a lot of comments in Goodreads, and I think we've had this discussion before for other books where in, inserting like modern songs or contexts or stuff like that kind of takes people out of the moment sometimes. But I think in this context, for me, it I felt the same way you did, that it's like it was a, a marker of a period that kind of lasted in the story and just like came through to, yeah. to show that these worlds are connected in, in a weird way uh, through the tower. So yeah, there's little like blips of realities that are seeping through into these worlds, and that just happens to be one of them. And there are other things that are different, and maybe they, they're more apparent in future books, like brands of cola that aren't from our world, right? but are still ancient in that time. So I don't think in this book that King is guilty of anachronisms. I think he picked these very carefully to make a point about alternate worlds and bleed over in that. Very cool. 
Well, we are done. We are done with The Gunslinger. It is done. We have read it. It's over. We don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Do you say <laughs> that so? That sounds really cruel. So say we all. No, damn, wrong. <laughs> then let it be so. Then let it be so. Let it be. Then let it be so. All you had to say was, "I do." Yes. I. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Do. Yep. Yep. Yar. 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 See, I couldn't even get that right. Uh, did I even read this book? Nobody knows. <laughs> no one can prove it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. Thank you so much to all the folks who back our show. And if you want to help support us, head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Yes, big thanks to everyone who supports us, including Fadzuli Saeed, Vincent Guthrie, Radia Albinson, and so many more of you. You can also support the show by buying books through our links. You can find links to the books we talk about and some of our favorites at swordandlaser.com slash picks. I like to think of the picks page as being the Sword and Laser bookstore. If you just wanted to like browse the shelves mm. of Sword and Laser, that would be those would be the books on the shelves. So go take check it out, swordandlaser.com slash picks. Leave us a review. We will apparently start saying your name on the show if we remember, which we will. We definitely we'll so will. remember. Tom will definitely remember to do that. If you want to leave us an email, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157sword6. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.